Welcome to Reviving Virtue, a podcast where we face the urgent challenges of today's world by exploring the crucial role of uncovering, together, a coherent moral narrative for our time. I'm your host, Jeffrey Anthony, on a quest to tackle liberalism's quandary and pave the way towards a more unified society. Join me on this journey as we delve into ethics, philosophy, and community building, seeking to create a common understanding that fosters human flourishing and harmony. Welcome to Reviving Virtue. Okay, welcome back to Reviving Virtue in our seventh episode, in which we are continuing our exploration of some concepts of John Dewey. What spurred me to add one more episode onto the end of those onto this John Dewey series is that I felt like I needed to explore the concept of intelligence that John Dewey utilizes because he uses a very specific model, I guess you can call it, even a framework of the, the word intelligence is not how we consider it today. So we will begin looking at a chapter in the book, Ethics, jointly published with James Hayden Tufts in 1908, and then was released several years later as, with the major revisions in 1932. The book is about ethics and Dewey reflecting on his fundamental belief in the pragmatic and experiential aspects of ethics over abstract moral principles. Dewey held that moral judgments are rooted in our experiences and should be understood within the context of the social and cultural conditions in which they arise. This is a very big, this overarching theme of Dewey's work, right? So the chapter is called The Place of Reason in the Moral Life, Moral Knowledge. I, the copy of the version that I have is from uh, the John Dewey, what is it called? The John Dewey, the Middle Works. It's the collection of all of his writings, and they have they split it up into early, middle, and late. And this one is in volume five, which I mentioned in my last episode, I believe, got for $5 off of eBay, and I could tell it was never opened, which is an incredible deal. So let's start this. We're going to start with me reading the entire first paragraph of the book here, because I think it's going to be able to frame how we're going to go through this discussion. It's titled Intelligence and Reasons in a Moral Act. To quote Dewey, a voluntary act is one which involves intention, purpose, and in some degree of deliberateness. It is this trait which marks off the voluntary act from a purely unconscious act, like that of a machine, and from one which yields to the superior urgency of present feeling, one which is pushed on from behind as an instinctive or impulsive act, instead of being called out by some possibility ahead. This factor of forethought and of preference after comparison for some one of the ends considered in the factor of intelligence involved in every voluntary act. To be intelligent in action is, however, a far-reaching affair. To know what one is really about is a large and difficult order to fill, so large and difficult that it is the heart of morality. The relevant bearings of any act are subtler and larger than those which can be foreseen, and than those which will be, unless special care is taken. The tendencies which strongly move one to a certain act are often exactly those which tend to prevent one seeing the effect of the act upon his own habits and upon the well-being of others. The internal forces and external circumstances which evoke the idea of an end and of the means of attaining it are frequently also those which deflect intelligence to a narrow and partial view. The demand for a standard by which to regulate judgment of ends is thus the demand not only for intelligence, 
but for a certain kind of intelligence. In short, a truly moral or right act is one which is intelligent in an emphatic and peculiar sense. It is a reasonable act. It is not merely one which is thought of, and thought of as good, at the moment of action, but one which will continue to be thought of as good in the most alert and persistent reflection. For by reasonable, in quotes, action we mean such action as recognizes and observes all the necessary conditions, action in which impulse, instinct, inclination, habit, opinion, prejudice, as the case may be, are moderated, guided, and determined by considerations which lie outside of and beyond them, not merely to form ends and select means, but to judge the worth of the means and ends by a standard, is then the distinctive province of reason and morals. Its outcome is moral knowledge. That is, judgments of right and wrong, both in general and in particular, in perplexing cases as they arise. This is the topic of the present chapter. End quote. Now, for Dewey, intelligence is not merely about cognitive capacity or the ability to think logically. We explored this over the last six episodes in The Public and Its Problems. Dewey views intelligence as a tool for problem solving, a means for navigating the complexities of life and society, and emphasizes the role of intelligence in public life and decision-making. He argues that the public must use their collective intelligence to identify and address societal problems. This involves understanding the problem, considering various solutions, and making decisions based on the best available evidence and reasoning. Dewey's concept of intelligence is thus deeply intertwined with action and practicality. It's not about abstract thinking or theoretical knowledge but about using our cognitive abilities to make informed decisions and to take effective action. Because of this primary focus towards action and reflection upon the consequences of actions, Dewey is going to begin the chapter by essentially torching Immanuel Kant's moral framework and Kant's conception of a priori reason. Dewey states, and I quote, Kant is at one with the hedonist as regards the natural object of desire. It is pleasure. All purposes and ends that spring from inclination and natural tendency come under one head, self-love. Hence, the ordinary use of intelligence is confined to the matter of passing upon what constitutes the individual's private happiness and how he shall secure it. There are then fundamental contrasts between ordinary practical activity and genuinely moral activity. Contrasts which reflect themselves in the theory of the nature and function of moral knowledge. The moral end is unqualified, absolute, categorical. It is not something which we can pick and leave at our option. Morality is the region of final ends. Ends not to be disputed or questioned, and reason must set forth such final ends. Since, however, happiness is not a morally necessary end, intelligence in its behalf, can only give hypothetical counsel and advice. If you would be happy, or happy in this or that way, then take such and such measures. Reason, which promulgates ends, must be of a different sort from the intelligence which simply searches for means. End quote. This is a pretty brutal critique of Kant here. Dewey is saying, in a Kantian moral universe, the adjudication of ends is not allowed. How convenient. And this is the exact opposite of Dewey's conception of intelligence, which necessarily incorporates a conception of ends which must be judged and adjudicated within the public. 
So Dewey's critique revolves around the idea that Kant separates the ends from the means. In the Kantian framework, moral ends are categorical, absolute, and cannot be questioned, leaving intelligence with the function of figuring out the best means to those ends. And that's it. Dewey, however, sees this as a severe limitation. He posits that intelligence should not just be instrumental in finding means to a given end, but also in actively deciding what the ends themselves should be. It is this participatory democratic vision of morality and intelligence that starkly contrasts with Kant's more top-down, unquestioned approach. How convenient is this moral universe where ends are given and you are not allowed to adjudicate them? Who does this privilege in this moral universe? That's right, those already in power in making the moral claims. Dewey turns his critique towards Kant's conception of a priori reason which forms the backbone of Kant's moral framework. Kant sees morality as springing from a faculty of reason that operates independently of all experience of desire, pleasure, and pain. That's ridiculous. Essentially, it expresses itself as an a priori law of conduct untouched by the contaminants of sensuous human nature. This detachment, Dewey argues, leads to a purely formal, empty conception of reason. It doesn't provide guidance for specific moral actions. It merely states that morality requires us to follow the law of reason. However, this separation of reason from experience leads to a crucial problem known as the problem of specificity. The problem of specificity relates to the question of how such a purely formal and independent reason can provide specific moral guidance. As Dewey observes, Kant's reason, in its independence from experience, is empty. It does not provide specific directives on moral conduct, such as when and how much to give, or whether to act prudently or generously. It only states that we ought to abide by the law of reason. This prompts the question, how do we use this empty formal reason to discern specific actions that should be taken? In response to this problem, Kant proposes a method of evaluating the morality of specific actions. The concept is pretty straightforward. We should ask whether the principle behind an action should be applied universally without resulting in self-contradiction. If it could, the act would be deemed moral and great and good. Hey, if it couldn't, the act would be deemed immoral. Oh. For example, if one were to contemplate making a false promise to avoid trouble, they would need to consider whether a world where everyone did the same would be contradictory. If the answer is yes, the act is not moral. Now, while Dewey recognizes the instructedness of Kant's method, he maintains that this method relies on evaluating concrete ends rather than existing independently from them. It invites us to reflect impartially on the general implications of our actions, their underlying principles, and their potential universalization. This means that the validity of Kant's original proposition about an a priori law of conduct that operates independently from experience comes into question. Rather, it highlights how moral considerations are driven by the potential for generalizing the ends of our actions. Nevertheless, Kant's critique doesn't stop at the contradictions that emerge within his system. He further expands on his ethical framework by introducing the notion of social end as the rational end. Here, Kant emphasizes the interplay between social relations and morality, suggesting that the true measure of an act's morality lies in how it aligns with the collective aspiration of individuals. A morally righteous end, Kant argues, is one that harmonizes with the broadest possible perspective of life. Actions that sow discord or inconsistency within this system of life objectives are deemed immoral. Thus, 
reason's true function emerge, to cast a wider net over the implications of our intentions and bring to the surface any inherent inconsistencies or contradictions. Kant's deep dive into the social dimensions of morality serves to bridge the perceived gap between his seemingly abstract rationalism and the utilitarian's more tangible social standard. He suggests that every rational person is an end in themselves, and should therefore never be used merely as means to an end. The premise leads to a guiding principle of conduct so act as to treat humanity, whether in thine own person or in that of any other, as an end, never as a means merely. In the kingdom of ends that Kant envisions, all persons are of equal significance and warrant equal regard and behavior. When breathed into life with tangible meanings, these philosophical positions pivots toward the propositions that each person's welfare should count as much as another's. This notion aligns Kant's philosophy closer to utilitarian views, such as those propounded by Bentham and Mill, suggesting that the concept of good is the sum of activities in which all participants contribute, deploy their abilities, and find reinforcement. Despite these advances, Kant's moral philosophy does not remain unscathed under scrutiny. If the common good becomes the yardstick for rationalizing desire, Kant's vision of a priority reason undergoes a complete metamorphosis. Ironically, Kant seems to contradict his own theory when he asks us to universalize the end of desire. His initial proposition that no private desire being an expression of self-love can ever be universalized, comes back to Hahnem. We are left to question the coherency of Kant's a priori and transcendental reason. On the contrary, if we omit the concrete experiential conditions and outcomes of desire, there isn't a motive that couldn't be universalized. There's no formal contradiction in persistently acting on negative motives, such as theft. All that Kant's method seems to demand, in strict logic, is that an individual consistently act on the same motive under similar circumstances. This is like method rather than substance. Yet, at the heart of Kant's philosophy, there lies a more profound insistence. He pushes for the restructuring of desire as it is, unreflective and causal, into a consistent manifestation of the individual's overarching aims. In a true act of rationalization, desire must not be accepted as a suitable motive until it has been integrated into a desire for an end that harmonizes with the entire system of ends inherent in the agent's capacities and tendencies. This, Dewey argues, is the crux of Kant's moral philosophy. His theory serves as a warning that only when a particular desire is directed towards a social good will it meet this requirement. But how does this theoretical standpoint translate into a functional method? This forms the crux of our subsequent examination. In the next section titled Moral Sense Intuitionalism, Dewey explores the concept of moral sense intuitionalism to quote, So far, our conclusions are 1. That the province of reason is to enable us to generalize our concrete ends, to form such ends are consistent with one another, and reinforce one another, introducing continuity and force where otherwise there would be division and weakness. And two, the only social ends are ultimately reasonable since they alone permit us to organize our acts into consistent wholes. Our underlying aim here is to bring out the relation of immediate appreciation to deliberate reflection, with a view to showing that the reasonable standpoint, that of the common good, becomes effective through socialized attitudes and emotions of a person's own character. End quote. According to this theory, Rightness or wrongness is 
seen as an inherent and immediate quality of specific acts, comparable to how sensory perception quickly identifies specific attributes and objects. This theory stands in contrast with utilitarianism, which views rightness as a quality derived from the consequences of actions rather than their intrinsic nature. However, Dewey notes two significant objections to this theory. First, that not all acts have an inherent moral attributes that are self-evident. And second, that those immediate moral attributes are not infallible and can often be influenced by prior experiences and societal conditioning. Dewey argues that moral values are not absolute, but rather they evolve over time based on past experiences and societal conditioning. He emphasizes that immediate moral recognition occurs under usual circumstances, implying that it is susceptible to error when conditions change. Dewey asserts that reflective morality, which involves considering the consequences of our actions, is a more comprehensive approach to understanding the moral implications of our actions. He adds that the best way to make moral judgments is by relying on the combination of intuition and deliberate thought, considering the emotional implications of anticipated outcomes as well as their practical effects. So, let's use a metaphor to sum up Dewey's points here. Imagine a painter standing before a blank canvas, a paintbrush in hand. Each stroke she makes is akin to a moral decision. Some strokes are applied intuitively, guided by an innate sense of aesthetics, like the moral sense intuitionalism theory that we just discussed. These strokes, she knows, without any conscious thought, will enhance the painting. However, she doesn't paint purely on an intuition. She also steps back occasionally, observes the painting in its entirety, and reflects on how each stroke contributes to the overall composition. This reflective action corresponds to Dewey's idea of deliberation and calculation of consequences in morality. Sometimes the painter might realize that a stroke she initially thought was perfect could, in fact, be improved upon or completely changed to better serve the overall composition of the artwork. This mirrors Dewey's assertion that moral judgments, even those seemingly self-evident and absolute, may need to be reassessed and revised as circumstances change. Thus, the painter's approach of combining intuitive strokes with thoughtful reflection on the larger picture could be seen as a fitting metaphor for Dewey's perspective on morality. Before we move on to the next section, I'm going to quote Dewey here again to show his evisceration of utilitarianism. So, to quote, The notion that deliberation upon the various alternatives open to us is simply a cold-blooded setting down of various items to our advantage and various other items to our disadvantage, as Robinson Crusoe wrote down in bookkeeping fashion his miseries and blessings, and then striking an algebraic balance implies something that never did and never could happen. Deliberation is a process of active, suppressed rehearsal of imaginative dramatic performance of various deeds carrying to their appropriate issue the various tendencies which we feel stirring within us. When we see in imagination this or that change brought about, there is a direct sense of the amount and kind of worth which attaches to it, a real, as real and as direct, if not as strong, as if the act were really performed and its consequences really brought home to us, end quote. As Dewey speaks often of the importance of consequences, it is important to note he is not a utilitarian, as you can tell from that last segment. Dewey's approach is far more comprehensive and nuanced than the mathematical summation of pains and pleasures proposed by the naive reductionism of utilitarianism. As we move toward the very last section of this chapter called The Place of General Rules, 
Dewey delves into the complex relationship between moral principles, general rules, and particular cases, presenting a critique of the approaches of intuitionalism and causatry. He points out the difficulty of applying broad, abstract rules to the nuances of individual situations, cautioning against the potential of such rules to serve as a procrustean bed, essentially restricting and potentially deforming the richness and freedom of individual moral decisions. It is within this context that he explores two aforementioned frameworks. Intuitionalism, as he describes it, proposes that moral rules are inherent, potentially divinely revealed, and not derived from past or potential future cases. In other words, these rules descend out of the blue sky. This perspective presents a significant challenge because it fails to provide any mechanism by which we might discern when and how to apply such rules in practice. Further, such broad rules, while intended to be universally applicable by necessity, must ignore the specific differentiating factors of individual cases. As a result, intuitionalist moral rules often leave the actual implementation of moral action up to chance, personal judgment, or external authority. The result, Dewey notes, can lead to an elaborate formalism and legalism, where the moral life is strictly codified and regimented. Intuitionalism, as Dewey presents it here, can be likened to a compass that always points in the same direction regardless of the terrain. Imagine you are navigating through a diverse landscape complete with mountains, rivers, forests, and open plains. The compass, representing the inherent, potentially divine, revealed moral rules of intuitionalism, always points north. It remains consistent, unchanging, regardless of the terrain and path you're currently navigating. However, while this steadfast direction might seem helpful at first, it fails to account for the nuanced details of our journey. It doesn't consider whether you are facing a towering mountain or a rushing river, a dense forest or a tranquil plain. Just as these environmental features demand different responses, so do the diverse circumstances we encounter in our lives require nuanced moral deliberation. Moreover, this compass does not guide you on how to navigate these terrains. Nope. It simply points north. It's like a framework, right? It's an empty, it's an empty uh, framework. Likewise, intuitionalism's moral rules, while constant, do not provide specific guidance on how to apply them in the varied and complex situations of our lives. As such, it often falls on us, the travelers, to figure out how to apply these moral directions to our unique circumstances, much like how we have to discern the best way to traverse the landscape before us despite the compass always pointing in the same direction. Lastly, the risk with this compass metaphor is that it can lead to a strict codification and regimentation of our moral journey, such like following a predetermined route through our landscape without considering the individual characteristics and challenges of the terrains we traverse. It can result in an elaborate formalism and legalism, where our moral life becomes less about thoughtful, responsive navigation and more about adherence to unchanging direction of the compass. Now, this takes us to causatry, framework often utilized within moral systems that rely on a set of hard and fast rules. It attempts to predict and provide exact rules for every conceivable case of action. Dewey uses the example of the commandment, do not kill, detailing how causatry would outline the moral quality of every potential circumstance surrounding this action. The result is an exhaustive cataloging and classification of actions and their inner springs. 
The inherent danger of causes tree, Dewey argues, is its tendency to prioritize the letter of morality over its spirit. It risks fostering a moral environment that is either self-serving, formal, and rigid, or one that is legalistic in nature, focusing on liability and punishment over the individual's innate moral compass. I think the concept of virtues offers a compelling contrast to the rigid rule-based approach of intuitionalism and causatry. Virtues, traditionally defined as moral habits and, or dispositions, are not rules or instructions, but rather they're guideposts that shape our behavior and decisions over time through practice. They encourage moral growth through continual practice, reflection, and refinement, much like the honing of a craft of learning a new skill, like playing an instrument. So unlike the blue sky rules of intuitionalism that descend without connection to specific contexts or the painstaking catalog of situations and causatry, virtues offer a middle ground. They provide a general guidance, but they also leave ample room for interpretation and adaption to specific circumstances. Virtues don't come with predetermined outcomes or rigid guidelines. Instead, they invite us to bring our own intelligent action and agency into play. In the Deweyan sense, virtues can be seen as a form of creative action. As we practice virtues, we develop an inherent understanding of their contours, their limits, and their possibilities. Just like an artist gaining mastery over her medium, in the Deweyan sense, virtues can be seen as a form of creative action. As we practice virtues, we develop an inherent understanding of our contours, their limits, and their possibilities, just like an artist gaining mastery over her medium. With this understanding, we can apply our virtues more effectively and adaptively in response to various life situations. Just as an accomplished musician can improvise a piece of music that beautifully captures the mood of the moment, a person well-practiced in virtues can navigate complex moral situations with grace, thoughtfulness, and creativity. The musician we're talking about is not following a rigid set of rules, but draws upon their understanding of music theory, their technical skill, their familiarity with their instrument, and their intuitive grasp of the emotional landscape in which they are embedded at the time they are making their music. In the same vein, a virtuous person doesn't merely adhere to predetermined rules, but employs their understanding of virtues, their prior experiences, their emotional intelligence, and their creative capacity to respond to moral challenges in ways that are both morally sound and contextually appropriate. This perspective aligns with Dewey's view of intelligent action, where moral deliberation involves a creative process of envisioning, predicting, experimenting, and learning from those experiences. Virtues in this sense serve as a tool or instruments that we learn to wield with increasing skill and finesse and enabling us to engage with our moral life as an ongoing practice of creative moral exploration. Now, lastly, Dewey notes the potentially detrimental impact of this moral system on personal freedom and spontaneity. This is the causatory and intuitionalism. It risks reducing moral life to a fearful adherence to externally imposed rules. The center of moral gravity is shifted away from the individual and the concrete process of living. It's important to note here that Dewey does not reject the value of rules and principles outright, but he cautions against a blind and rigid adherence to them that does not account for the complexity and fluidity of human experience. It's our responsibility not to do that. In essence, Dewey challenges us to reconsider how we relate to moral rules and principles, inviting us to view them not as rigid directives to be applied without thought, 
but rather as guidelines that can inform our intuitive, thoughtful, and dynamic engagement with the moral situations we encounter every day in our lives. As we draw this chapter to a close, we are left with some powerful insights from Dewey. Dewey posits a compelling alternative to the intuitionalism and the causatory. Dewey posits some compelling alternatives to this intuitionalism morality that that we were speaking about in this episode. The importance of moral principles understood not as prescriptive commands, but as intellectual tools that guide us in critically assessing particular situations. The central thrust of Dewey's argument is that we must resist the allure of a one-size-fit-all morality. Instead, we should embrace principles that allow for a comprehensive understanding of the given situation and prioritize empathy in understanding the perspectives and interests of others. In line with this, the golden rule and sympathy emerge not as moral injunctions, but as instrumental principles for situational analysis. Dewey's portrayal of the golden rule, for instance, isn't a strict dictate to do unto others as you would have do unto you in every literal sense. Rather, it is a principle that prompts us to consider our actions from other perspectives and to take into account the impact of our actions on others. Yeah, empathy. Dewey's elevation of sympathy as a central moral principle marks a significant shift from more rule-based moral philosophies. It underscores the need for emotional intelligence in our moral deliberations, requiring us to imagine ourselves in the place of others, understanding their values the best we can, and incorporate these considerations into our judgments, which then guide our actions. In fact, his explanation of sympathy here deserves some a long quote. So, quoting Dewey, We have had repeated occasions, as in the discussion of intent and motive of intuition and deliberate calculation, to see how artificial is the separation of emotion and thought from one another. As the only effective thought is one fused by emotion into a dominant interest, so the only truly general, the reasonable as distinct from the merely shrewd or clever thought, is the generous thought. Sympathy widens our interest in consequences and leads us to take into account such results as affect the welfare of others. It aids us to count and weigh these consequences as counting for as much as those which touch our own honor, purse, or power. To put ourselves in the place of another, to see from the standpoint of their purposes and values, to humble our estimate of our own claims and pretensions to the level they would assume in the eyes of a sympathetic and impartial observer, is the surest way to attain universality and objectivity of moral knowledge. Sympathy, in short, is the general principle of moral knowledge, not because its commands take precedent of others, which they do not necessarily, but because it furnishes the most reliable and efficacious intellectual standpoint. It supplies the tool par excellence for analyzing and resolving complex cases. As was said in our last chapter, it is the fusion of the sympathetic impulses with others that is needed. What we now add is that in this fusion, sympathy supplies the POW style, which is vantage point, for an effective, broad, and objective survey of desires, projects, resolves, and deeds. It translates the formal and empty reason of Kant out of its abstract and theoretical character just as it carries the cold calculations of utilitarianism into recognition of the common good. Man, this is powerful. It just gives me goosebumps when I read that the first time. This makes me think of our healthcare system in the United States. I mean, let's picture a playground teeming with children. 
a microcosm of our society, you could say. Each child represents a different aspect of the healthcare system. In the American playground, a bully, symbolic of utilitarian and economic-centric ideologies, often dominates, pushing children around without any regard for their individual needs or feelings. This bully is concerned primarily with his own personal gain, getting Billy's lunch money, taking Carol's favorite toy, rather than any concern with the welfare of the group. And why should he? He was brought up with American individualism, ingrained into his moral horizon. This bully pays no heed to the little girl with the broken doll, or the timid boy who's afraid of the slide, those who are marginalized and underserved by our current healthcare system, right? Here, empathy and sympathy are conspicuously absent as they are incoherent in this hyper-Americanized moral universe, the bully's rule imposing their will and control to the detriment of the majority. Now, across the pond over in the other European countries, let's look at their playground where the rules of the game are fundamentally different. These playgrounds, representative of more comprehensive integrated healthcare systems, harbor a spirit of community and collective responsibility imbued with moral narratives that place the well-being of the community as the primary unit of importance. In these spaces, when a bully begins to act out, other children step in. They empathize with the victim countering the bully's force with unity and compassion, drawing upon their moral narratives imbued from their culture for guidance when they intervene. They understand that each child on the playground, just like each individual in their healthcare system, matters not only in some abstract ideal, but to their very own well-being and their future potentialities to thrive. The consequences of their actions are evaluated not in terms of personal gain, but in the context of the well-being of the whole playground. In this narrative, the United States healthcare system appears as a playground fraught with injustices dominated by bullies whose actions stem from a limited, narrow, utilitarian perspective on life. They fail to grasp the richness of human experiences and needs, disregarding the important role of sympathy in creating a just, equitable system as the poverty of the moral narratives which inform their actions fail to provide them with the necessary guidance. Just as a bully-free playground creates a healthier, nurturing environment for all children, a healthcare system grounded in sympathy and empathy can foster a society where everyone's health needs are valued and addressed. To achieve this, we must decisively break free from the cold, narrow confines of utilitarianism, embracing a broader perspective that considers the qualitative nuances which embody the well-being of all in ultimately embracing the truth that my health and well-being is contingent upon yours. Realizing that true health is about more than just economic efficiency, it's about truly caring for each other. As we've seen, children on a playground learn to stand up to bullies to protect their peers. We can do the same. We can stand up to the moral failings of our current system and demand a healthcare system that is just and equitable. One that ensures all Americans, regardless of their circumstances, receive the care they need and deserve. At the end of the day, this isn't just about policy or economics. It's about the kind of society we want to be a part of. To close out here, Dewey's perspective presents morality as a dynamic, thoughtful, and empathetic practice. It is a powerful reminder that morality cannot be reduced to mere rules of calculation of utility, but must be embedded in our everyday encounters with the world. In a broader sense, Dewey's insight provide a compelling roadmap for navigating the complexities of our moral lives, suggesting that the path to right action lies as much in empathy and critical thinking as it does in adherence to any predefined set of rules. Okay, 
We have gotten to the end of Episode 7 of Reviving Virtue. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you next week, which will be somewhat of a surprise. I have something exciting to announce. We'll be our first guest next week. His name is Jeffrey Nicholas, and we're going to be talking about his book that I have right here if you're watching on video. And if you're on the podcast apps, the book is called Reason, Tradition, and the Good. McIntyre's Tradition-Constituted Reason and Frankfurt School's Critical Theory. I've read this book and it's really remarkable and it ties into a lot of what we're discussing here so far and what we're going to discuss through the course of this podcast. And I'm really excited to have Jeff to be our very first guest and that will be next week. So until then, let's each do our part to nurture our societal garden fostering growth of shared symbols, meanings, virtues, and moral narratives that resonate with our time and aspirations. All transcripts, if you want, are available on Patreon for the $3 a month Moral Explorer tier. And if you upgrade to the $5 a month Ethical Pioneer tier, you can listen to the podcast early and receive a private RSS feed, which you can subscribe to through your podcast app. I usually finish these episodes four to five days early, sometimes more than that, up to two weeks early. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. Be well.